Addicted to Love, Autobiography of Jan Leeming. Chapter 7. HTV and Pebble Mill at One. I've always found solace in work. I could immerse myself in the programmes at HTV and not consider my worries until I came home alone in the evening. Thank goodness I had Fleur and Sheba wagging their stumpy tails and covering me with licks, love and affection. Tails were docked in those days. Women Only was gaining in popularity. The viewing figures showed that Report West was way ahead of the BBC's local news programme. There was an empathy between Bruce and myself, a partnership that worked superbly. Many thought we were having an affair. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Bruce was firmly and happily married to his wife Caroline and utterly devoted to his children Georgiana and Giles. We socialised on high days and holidays only. The feeling of popularity is a heady one, but it comes at a price, and that price is freedom. Increasingly, I was under the spotlight. The viewers liked what I wore, didn't like what I wore, criticised and applauded in speedy succession. One of the funniest events of that otherwise traumatic year was Jean suggesting that a change of image mightn't be a bad thing. I'd been wearing my hair brushed back and slightly backcombed with a flick at the sides. At that time, Jean styled hair but didn't cut it, and I was handed over to a trendy new recruit called Richard. He was one of those hairdressers, and there are many, who take control of your hair and give it the style they want not what suits you. I emerged from the salon with a medieval pageboy look, as one newspaper described it, with a geometric fringe cut like curtains across my forehead. The switchboard was jammed and for an hour no one could make a call out of the studio. The viewers didn't like the style and told me so in no uncertain terms. The local newspaper reported that I was unrepentant and would keep the style. But I didn't, and within days was back to the old familiar one. Clothes were becoming a big problem. The public expects you to have an extensive wardrobe and assumes it's provided at the studio's expense. Well, it wasn't, and I had to find seven different outfits a week. The more feminine clothes I wore for women only weren't suitable for Report West. There were evening functions requiring glamour clothes. Because I was PAYE employee, I had no right to any tax allowances. I got so incensed at one point that I phoned up the tax officer dealing with HTV. The company had studios on both sides of the Severn, in Cardiff and Bristol, but the administrative centre was in Wales, so was the tax office. The operative who looked after me was a Mr Jones. When I finally got through to him, 
I politely asked if he watched our channel. Oh, yes, Miss Leeming, you're one of my favourites and I watch most of your programmes. Right, said I, you are aware of how many clothes I use and that these are not provided by the studio. Oh, yes, Miss Leeming, and lovely they are too. Then, Mr Jones, you know that my clothing bills are genuine. Oh, yes, Miss Leeming. So why am I not entitled to claim a tax allowance for them? Goodness, Miss Leeming, I wouldn't let my wife spend that much on clothes. So I'm not allowed to claim an allowance? Oh, no, Miss Leeming. End of conversation. I was flabbergasted. Another HTV personality, a man, also took up the cudgels with the Inland Revenue. He lost his case. It all revolved around the wording of our contracts. At least I've never forgotten Mr Jones. I enjoyed living in Bristol. To me, it was a city big enough to be interesting, yet small enough to be intimate. We had very good theatre, art galleries and restaurants. Evenings were often taken up attending charity functions. At weekends, I sometimes visited Cecily and George Dobson, the parents of my ex-boyfriend, John. He'd got married in the interim, and Cecily felt it would no longer cause embarrassment to either John or myself if the friendship between we two women were allowed to progress. Over the years, she has been like a second mother to me. We shared a love of antiques and would often roam around the galleries in Foy or Truro, mostly looking, sometimes buying. She had readily taken to Jeremy and was sad for both of us when the marriage broke up. She was always there offering a shoulder to cry on. My mother is the eternal optimist and it can get very wearing when she continually assured me it will be all right in the end. Of course it will. It has to be or you'd curl up and die. But these words are no comfort when your heart is bleeding. As a child, I had asthma till the age of seven when my tonsils were taken out. The asthma left me, but with bronchitic conditions in the family, on both the paternal and maternal side, I was very prone to colds, sore throats and tonsillitis. Using my voice all the time and working in stuffy television studios was doing my voice no good at all. I came down with tonsillitis and laryngitis with monotonous regularity. An ear, nose and throat specialist concluded that my tonsil beds had grown again. I would require another tonsillectomy. It's not a pleasant operation even when you're a child. As an adult, it's ten times worse. In spring 1974, I had the operation and was again greatly touched by the goodwill of the viewers. My room looked like a florist shop. The bed was like a toy store with all the fluffy animals and goodwill gifts that had been sent. I needed a period of convalescence and a meeting with Owen was years overdue. I wrote and asked if I could visit. We had corresponded sporadically. I knew he'd spent several years working for UNESCO, setting up television stations in various parts of the world. His long-term goal had always been to make enough money for him to be able to retire to France and continue his writing. This he was now doing. In the years since we'd parted, Owen had achieved some success with both his poetry and his plays. 
As my plane began its descent into Marseille airport, I experienced a mixture of anxiety and anticipation. Although we'd kept abreast of each other's news, it was nearly 10 years since we'd seen each other. And I began to wonder if the holiday was a good idea. But as I emerged through the gate, there was my dear, familiar, loving Owen with his arms held out to greet me as he murmured, Welcome, my Jeannie. The intervening years evaporated. We had so much news with which to catch up. We put the chat on hold so that I could enjoy the magnificent countryside as we drove north. It was probably my years in Australia that gave me a love of wide and somewhat stark scenery. Provence is a hot and dry area with jagged limestone escarpments, valleys filled with olive groves and almond fields. The area is carpeted with thyme and rosemary, and as it was spring, the blossom was shedding like confetti onto the ground. Owen lived north of Salon in a village called Lamanon. He'd rented the tower apartment in a small chateau. Being a tower, the rooms were round. He had filled them with an esoteric mix of art and artefacts purchased from the countries in which he had set up TV stations. I suddenly had a panic attack. Would Owen expect us to pick up where we had left off? I needn't have worried. Ever sensitive and kind, he assured me that though he'd love us to resume a physical relationship, he was content to wait and see. I really don't know why I remained so special to him after the way I'd let him down, but I still have a postcard he sent me in 1971 in which he said, In spite of our rough times and splitting up, I must admit that in those ten years I haven't again experienced the strength of feeling which drew me to you. On my first evening in Lamanon, Owen's landlady invited us in for an aperitif. She was the epitome of everything one associates with a well-educated, middle-aged French woman. She dressed beautifully and entertained in style. She had an array of drinks, but suggested I try her favourite, and so began my liking of ambassadeur. You can't always get it in France, and I've never been able to acquire it in England. It's a fortified wine with a taste somewhere between sherry and port. It must be served chilled with a slice of orange, and it is delicious. Owen had become a very good cook and managed to conjure the most wonderful tastes out of virtually nothing. He kept a good cellar, too. He had a nose for a bargain and bought well, laying down his wines and drinking them at the right time. At dinner, he wanted to know all about my work. He was very proud of what I'd achieved because he was the one who pushed me out into the world with boundaries way beyond my original expectations. He wanted to know where the Jeremy episode had gone wrong. I was at a loss to explain that what had started so well had ended so badly and really couldn't give him any reasons. We had a lovely evening, but I realised, although my feelings for him were deep and sincere, there was no physical desire. I know he was disappointed, but he loved me enough to enjoy me as a friend. The next day we went into Salon, the home of Nostradamus, 
the 16th century astrologer and physician and author of a book of much quoted predictions. Salon is a most attractive town which has spread out from its original walls. By the clock tower is an unusual fountain surrounded by cafes. The Mossy Fountain has been created by the action of limescale build-up on the original sculpture, which has then been subjected to the dropping of seeds by birds. The whole effect is like a large tree dripping water. Many of the fountains in the area have become mossy, but the one in Salon is the largest and most famous. Owen gave me a wonderful holiday. Although he had a limited budget, he always managed to make experiences exciting. We were lucky enough to visit the Camargue at a time when you could take a car right across it. Today, vehicular access is forbidden. Even more fortunate, we saw the white horses, the bulls and the flamingos all in the same day. We also went to the gypsy church of Sainte-Marie-de-la-Mer, the two Marys of the sea. The saints are carried in procession once a year. One Mary is white and the other, supposedly her servant, is black. The church is fortified and stands stark against the Mediterranean. It's the centre for the annual pilgrimage of the gypsies of the Camargue. I've visited the Camargue so many times, but have never been there at the time of the gypsy gathering, where they carry the saints into the sea. On our way back from the Camargue, we called in at Les Beaux. It's where the original bauxite was mined. On the lower slopes of the Beaux range, there's an old Roman town that snakes up the side of the escarpment. On top, there's a medieval fortification. From the road, it's almost indiscernible until you realise the silhouette has a shape to it. It was once the stronghold of Cardinal Richelieu, who's reputed to have tipped all those who displeased him over the side and down into the valley. Well, he probably got his minions to do it. Owen took the opportunity to visit some small vineyards, including the famous Chateauneuf-du-Pape area. Because I was an English visitor, the proprietor allowed me to buy a few bottles of white Chateauneuf, which I was told was bottled and sent only to the Hilton Hotel in London's Park Lane. There wasn't a large yield and the Hilton nabbed the lot, except my two bottles. I kept them for many years and when opened, they offered the best white wine I'd ever drunk. The holiday was over and it was with much sadness that we said goodbye at the airport. The sadness was in part because we were separating and in part because we knew there was no future for us as romantic partners. We would always be the dearest of friends, but nothing more. We'd moved on, but it was good that our friendship was intact. Little did I realise how significant Les Beaux and the mossy fountain in Salon would be in the future. Life was full and getting fuller. Work was burgeoning. I had another mini-series added to my workload at HTV. Profile was, as its title suggested, a look at the life and work of West Country characters. Meanwhile, Women Only was going from success to success and was even syndicated by Scottish TV. Recording days were always a great joy, exciting people to greet, meet and chat with.
I have a lovely photo of George Melly and myself in the studio. His loud suit was worse than usual, and the director requested me to ask of him the very personal question as to why he wore the clothes he did. In his gravelly voice, he told me, well, dear, I happen to like them. They're my trademark. Mind you, I'd be very careful not to sit down at the seaside in this one in case someone paid threepence, three old pennies, and sat on me. For the uninitiated, George's wide-striped suits looked as though they were made out of deck chair canvas. I also met Winford Vaughan Thomas, a revered broadcaster, and we had a laugh over his famous remark made at a royal review of the fleet. There was a suggestion that Winford might just have had a wee drop before he went on air. After a rather banal comment that the fleet was all lit up, he continued by saying that Her Majesty the Queen Mother was wearing an off-the-hat face instead of the other way round. He swore to me that he hadn't had a drink or three beforehand. In one of the women-only programmes, I was scheduled to do an interview on corrective and cosmetic dentistry. After the interview, the dentist asked me why I'd not had anything done to my two front teeth. They leaned slightly backwards and had a groove across them, probably caused by a childhood illness affecting them while they were growing. As a youngster, I'd had a great deal of dentistry, during the course of which I'd had to wear a plate to enlarge my upper jaw. There had also been several painful extractions and I was dead scared of visits to the dentist. That's why I'd never done anything about my front teeth. Having confided my fears to my guest dentist, he persuaded me to visit his surgery in Nailsworth, just south of Stroud. I did have the teeth seen to and it made a world of difference. I had a habit, of which I was almost unaware, of covering my mouth with my hand when I smiled because of the teeth. Now, with my beautiful new teeth, I could really flash a smile. One of the most fascinating people to come on to Women Only in 1974 was Jan Morris. On the flyleaf of her book, Conundrum, was written, it is now public knowledge that James Morris, the author of Venice, Oxford, Pax Britannica, Heaven's Command, and many other books, has undergone a sex change and is now Miss Jan Morris. Jan had won innumerable awards for her writing, had been married, and was the father of four children. She maintained a relationship with her wife in what she called a family bond of passionate friendship. Her book discussed the tangled meanings of transsexualization. It was a searingly honest account of how she came to terms with her sexuality and of the appalling operation she had to endure to put herself into what she considered her right body. In the 70s, no surgery was available in England and Jan had to go to a Dr. B in Casablanca. He specialised in transsexual surgery and unhappy people from all over the world flocked to his clinic. I would have liked Jan, whatever sex she'd been. She empathised with me and we exchanged Christmas cards and postcards for several years. The West Country is a swinging place once you get to know what's on and where. I went to many thoroughly enjoyable events. 
At the Bristol Arts Centre, I'd met a very interesting couple who staged recitals at their beautiful home at Orton Dolwells near Taunton. What had started out as a thank you performance from some grateful actor who had been given bed and board by Brian Catley and Tom Cassidy had turned into a regular festival. I went to their sixth, which was a solo performance by the actor Marius Goring, who usually played tough Germanic types in films. The evening was dedicated to the 150th anniversary of the death of Lord Byron. As I was a Byron fan and also greatly admired Marius, the evening was to be a double treat. A champagne buffet supper was thrown in and all for three pounds. For several years, I went to super magical events there and saw artists such as Judy Dench, Barbara Jefford, Richard Pascoe and Barbara Lee Hunt. I've never lost my respect for the magic I find in theatre and meeting these stars was a great treat for me. I suppose it's like a lad meeting his football hero or a girl meeting some male heartthrob from a pop group or a television series. In 1975, I had a bear named after me. Bristol Zoo enjoyed an enviable reputation for rearing babies in captivity. On the 19th of March, the coldest day of the year, a four-month-old baby bear got her first taste of snow and was officially christened. HTV had run a competition for children to name the bear, and to my delight, a large number wished to call the bear after me, and Jan had come out as the overall winner. Jan was a trifle short, so a decision was made to couple the baby's name with that of her mother, Nina. Janina was the result. They will be grown now, perhaps with children of their own, but I wonder if Simon Monks and Kenneth and Rebecca Milliner will remember coming to the zoo to meet Janina and me. Women Only was now five years old. Report West was hugely popular, but I was getting restless. I'd seen researchers and producers come and go on Women Only and felt that as the longest serving member of the team, I probably cared for and knew more about the programme than those who passed through the studio on short term contracts. My interviews were chosen by the researcher or the producer. I had no say in the overall shape of the programme, but wanted to be more involved in decision making. I made noises, but no one listened. However, I did nothing proactive about moving on because, well, I was predominantly happy with my working life. In 1976, not only was I working on seven regular programmes a week, but also from time to time took part in a short series of current affairs nature. I was obviously of value to HTV and I was looking for some recognition of this. I knew that Bruce was on staff and was also earning more than I was. I desperately wanted security and plucked up courage to ask that I should either be put on the staff payroll or have my contract salary substantially increased. Neither request was granted. I wasn't sure whether my request fell on stony ground because I'd upset someone in the top hierarchy at HTV. How? Well, there had been a black tie dinner at the studio, after which I was invited for coffee by one of the management. I assumed the invitation was to take coffee in his office 
and discuss my request. Instead, he asked if I would give him a lift to the hotel in which he stayed during the week and we'd have coffee there. He'd actually lost his license due to drink driving. Bristol is hilly and the hotel was on a split level. I parked the car and we entered the building at basement level, taking the lift to the ground floor and the coffee shop. There were many members of HTV staff in the bar and they saw the two of us together as my host went to reception. He collected his keys and I felt uneasy. Uneasy not because I couldn't deal with the situation, but because it was one in which I didn't wish to find myself. What could I do? Yes, we could discuss business in his room, but I'd rather have had the discussion in the lobby. Suffice to say, I didn't stay long, took the lift to the basement, bypassing the ground floor, and drove home ready for an evening out with a friend. The next morning, gossip was rife in the studio. Because I hadn't been seen leaving, the HTV staff made a very wrong assumption. I was furious. I don't mind being hung for what I've done, but not for what I haven't. I immediately went to my news boss, Ron Evans, and told him the whole story. Of course he believed me, but there was nothing we could do to scotch the rumours, especially as the gentleman in question had something of a reputation. I wasn't actively looking for other work, but fate stepped in and played a hand. First of all, I had a phone call from Terry Dobson, the editor of Pebble Mill at One, a popular lunchtime magazine programme transmitted from the lobby of the BBC building in Birmingham. Terry wanted me to join the team and was prepared to come down to Bristol for a meeting. I also had an offer from BBC Scotland to join Donny B. MacLeod, who also worked on Pebble Mill, and Derek Cooper, a well-known wine and food connoisseur, in presenting a new series called The Food Programme. I haven't often been headhunted in my career, but it's an extremely flattering experience. If people other than your current employers want you, you have value and worth. It was heady stuff. Money didn't really enter the equation. Terry was offering a thousand pound a year more than HTV, but it would necessitate my having to stay in Birmingham during the week. He was prepared to pay expenses for a short while and then I was on my own with travelling and renting somewhere, so the extra cash would be eroded. Terry Dobson took me to lunch at Harvey's in Bristol, and at the end of lunch I was in a huge dilemma. Would I give up my relatively safe existence at HDV and go for exposure on a programme that went out nationwide? Perhaps it was a feeling that I was taken for granted at HDV despite the good ratings and the ever-increasing popularity of women only. Perhaps there was a subliminal feeling that I might make the big time with national exposure. I really can't be sure. I left HTV in June and was gratified to read a piece in the local press entitled Hard to Replace. A spokesman for the company indicated that I'd had an excellent rapport with the viewers and for the time being, they'd be trying out new faces and I wouldn't be replaced for some time. It may have run its course, as programmes do, but women only didn't survive for much longer than a year after I left. During the summer of 1976, I was busy filming inserts in Scotland for the food programme. 
I remember my very first encounter with the gentle Scottish lady who'd originally phoned me at HTV. Jeannie Hodge is one of the world's really good people. She'd had polio as a young girl and needed a caliper on one leg. This didn't stop her from working like a Trojan and getting about like a whirling dervish. She was also one of the most efficient production assistants you'd ever hope to meet. Everyone loved Jeannie. Her warmth, her smile lit up everything around her and nothing was ever too much trouble. Jeannie met me at Glasgow Airport and we drove north for a couple of hours to Loch Crinan. We liked each other immediately and as we drove, she filled me in on the programme. I'd never been further than Glasgow and found the scenery on our journey north quite breathtaking. On arriving at Crinan, I hardly had time to unpack my case before changing and being rushed up onto the hotel roof to start filming. The roof was flat and the surrounding wall had crenellations resembling a castle. With filming, one is always at the mercy of the weather. It was in our favour and Mike decided to shoot. I was to interview a chef about the secrets of a dish called Scallops Henry Morgan. The scallops were cooked in Verve Clicquot champagne and nothing less would do. I have to say, the finished dish was splendid, but I'd rather have drunk than eaten the champagne. So there I sat in solitary splendour, scoffing the scallops against the backdrop of the most incredible sunset as the sun sank over the loch. The next day we drove to the galley of Lorne to do a piece about the Black Velvet Festival. This was an excuse for a feast of oysters washed down with black velvet, which is champagne and Guinness. Again, what a waste of champagne. But it was great fun, and I remember getting sunburnt. Sunburn in Scotland? When the sun shines on the west coast of Scotland, it beats many a Mediterranean hotspot. When the proceedings were well underway, the laird of the surrounding area tapped the microphone and drew our attention. He gave out some rubbish about an explosion in the area. We thought he'd either indulged in too much black velvet or had sunstroke. However, when we returned to our hotel at Crinan, we were amazed to see the pier, perfectly symmetrical when we'd left in the morning, now leaning at a crazy angle. The story was that some fishermen had dredged up an unexploded shell in their fishing net. As there was no bomb disposal team in the area, the Navy came to the rescue. They carefully transported the shell from the fisherman's net and slowly lowered it down over the side of the pier. Telling all the bystanders to take cover behind the sea wall, they detonated it. Even I know that explosions magnify in water. The pier creaked, groaned and slid sideways and a local wag stood up and asked the commanding officer if his name was Captain Mannering of Dad's Army fame. The food programme was partly looking into the way foods were raised, produced or made, and partly us eating our way around hostelries of Scotland, from the highest to the lowest. When we visited restaurants, Donny and Derek were the most superb company both were good raconteurs and very witty. We had some great times together and the two of them often made my face ache with laughter. 
How I wish I'd had a small recording machine to make a collection of their stories. I think they used to try and outdo one another in making me laugh. At other times, we'd be off in different parts of Scotland, filming inserts for the programme. I remember one of Donnie's on the making of black pudding. It's a dish I don't like, but after seeing Donnie with his arm up to the elbow in blood, it put me right off. I did some filming with Birdseye in Norfolk. You wouldn't believe the precision that goes into picking a crop of peas at just the right time. Men with walkie-talkies are all over the place. It's like a scene from an American movie. The whole process of harvesting is run like a military operation. There is a countdown to action. At the designated moment, huge machines swing into life, harvesting the delicate crop without damage. I couldn't believe it when I saw a baby rabbit come out through the threshing arm, obviously frightened but unscathed. As it had been separated from its mother and was too small to survive on its own, I insisted we put it in a box and at the end of filming visit the local vet. Whether the vet found it a home or gave it a chop behind the ears as we left, I don't know, but I felt I'd done my bit for nature. We devoted a whole programme to the way the wealthy Georgians ate and dressed. The venue was Rothay Manor at Ambleside in the Lake District. Bronwyn Nixon, the proprietress, regularly held evenings where the guests would dress in costume appropriate to the period of food they would be consuming. We filmed all the preparations in the kitchen during the day and I couldn't believe the richness of the food nor the quantity. Items such as sugar demonstrated that you were a man of means and the desserts were among the most sickly I've ever encountered. It wasn't a surprise to learn that women wore little velvet patches on their faces to hide their spots. In the evening, I was kitted out in Georgian dress and sat and dined with the other guests. In the course of conversation, I learnt many things, including the fact that you can always tell whether silver is Georgian by its warmth. Georgian silver is pure, soft and warm and velvety to the touch. Later silver is mixed with different alloys and definitely has a much colder feel to it. Bronwyn was a lovely hostess and despite catering for three dozen people, was totally helpful during all the filming. Some years later, I picked the morning paper off the mat and was reading the front page as I walked back to my kitchen. There was a report of a murder in the Lake District. As I read on, I was horrified to discover the victim was Bronwyn. By the autumn of 1976, I was working on Pebble Mill from Monday to Thursday, sometimes flying up to Scotland on a Friday for filming and studio recordings of the food programme, and sometimes getting back to my home in Bristol for the weekend. My colleagues on Pebble Mill were all easy to get along with. Initially, Terry Dobson had looked upon me as a replacement for Marion Foster, but she'd become popular with the viewers and a decision was made to use the two of us. Donny B. MacLeod, he was referred to in his native Scotland as Donny B, I already knew and liked, and other members of the team were David Seymour and the strikingly handsome Bob Langley. Bob tended to be given all the outdoor material, David was our intellectual, Donny got many of the book reviews and most of the personality interviews, 
and we two women were interchangeable. We were definitely at the bottom of the pecking order. Marion and I got on well together. Both of us had to maintain homes in London and Bristol, respectively. So, to economise, we joined forces and rented a one-bedroom studio apartment. The deal was, we alternated having the bed one week and the put-you-up the next. The British appeared to be reticent about discussing money matters, but after a while, the two of us discovered we were being paid almost half what the men were getting. As if that weren't bad enough, Donnie was flown down from Aberdeen weekly and both he and Bob were put up in the Strathallan Hotel at the BBC's expense. This wasn't the first and certainly not the last time I encountered sexual discrimination within the television industry. Did the hierarchy assume most of us had husbands to keep us and we were only working for pin money with no need to earn a proper living? After a few months, Marion and I took a brave pill and feeling there might be safety in numbers, the two of us had a meeting with Terry in which we pointed out the injustice of our salaries compared with those of the men, plus the fact that we had to run our homes and pay for accommodation in Birmingham. Mr Dobson's answer? Ladies, if you don't like it, there's the door. There was nothing we could do about it. Terry was the boss and what he said went, so we stayed. From every angle, Pebble Mill was not an easy programme on which to work. For a start, it was transmitted from the big glass lobby of the studio complex. This made it notoriously difficult to light. The poor old lighting men would set the programme at around 10am when the world was grey and they needed every light they could get. And by the time we went on air, the sun would break through and we would be sweltering under the overbright lamps. On one occasion, Marion's hair was singed by the heat. We worked in temperature extremes. One minute you'd be baking hot inside, then you grabbed a coat, ran around the back of the building to do a gardening piece or a programme link. The lobby was long and narrow, and often you'd be halfway through a piece to camera on autocue when the camera would start to recede as it was pulled down to the other end of the studio. I made a golden rule that my script was always to hand, even if I had to sit on it, so I wouldn't be left high, dry and stranded. I didn't bargain on it ever being eaten. I once had to do an item in the mill garden with three goats. They'll eat anything, and they did, my script. Everyone had to work hard. To fill an hour every lunchtime is no mean feat. The researchers worked flat out and often didn't have time to check out the guests adequately or even make sure that a story would stand up. The format of the show was transmission at 1pm, followed by sandwiches and a glass of wine in a large room adjoining the editor's office. After the guests were dispatched, we had the programme meeting for the following day. I was always grateful when I was given a book review. Though I'm a fast reader, I find it impossible to spot read, so there was no quick option for me. I liked to be thorough and didn't feel I could conduct an interview authoritatively with a writer if I hadn't done him or her the courtesy of reading the work in full. Often it was necessary to burn the midnight oil. Sometimes there was a time restraint and it was impossible to do justice to a book. Then I would have to rely on the researcher's notes and line of questioning. This happened to me with the late Robert Morley. I asked a question and was very sweetly put down by him. 
The question was a nonsense, and it showed I hadn't read the book from cover to cover. However, he was very forgiving and asked Terry Dobson's permission to take me to lunch. Had I asked, I doubt that an assent would have been forthcoming, but Terry couldn't easily say no to Robert, and off I went to lunch in Birmingham. I felt very honoured, and it's one of many treasured memories from half a lifetime of interviews. The actor, Frank Finlay, was in Birmingham playing Henry VIII in a Leslie Brickus musical called Kings and Clowns. He was my guest for the programme, and on visiting him in his dressing room, I was staggered when he warned me he might dry up. I truly believed he was joking. He was a star of stage, no stranger to television cameras, used to memorising scripts and coming under scrutiny from the audience. How could this confident man possibly suffer from nerves? But he did. A glazed look entered the eyes of one about to dry up. Having been warned by Frank, I recognised the signs, made a joke about it, got around it, and the interview proceeded to the satisfaction of all concerned, I think. David Soule from the American Cops and Robbers series, Starsky and Hutch, visited the studio to promote his latest single. I didn't know a singing voice was one of his attributes and must say was pleasantly surprised, not only at his vocal ability, but at his courteousness. I was warned that the actor Robert Hardy was tricky to deal with. All I can say is that he gave me a lovely interview and was utterly charming. I know I'm not a highly intellectual interviewer, but in so many of the autographed books from my days at Pebble Mill, guests have commented on my ability to put them at their ease. To do this, you have to be familiar with your subject matter, so that with a structured line of questioning, you gently lead your guest into portraying themselves in the best light. I may not always have achieved it, but I believe the interviewer should fade into the background, giving centre stage to the guest. I did care about my guests and never wanted to see them stitched up. I've had many a heated discussion with researchers and producers over not being tough enough with a guest. That isn't my way. And that's why I could never be an aggressive current affairs or newspaper journalist. I don't like strangers intruding into my life and I don't do it myself. Do as you would be done by. Some of the guests left me with distinctly unpleasant memories. I found the French singer Charles Aznavour fell far short of his reputation for Gallic charm and Andrew Lloyd Webber difficult to handle. Andrew and his cello-playing brother had brought out a record called Variations, jazzed-up versions of many familiar classical pieces. Why I'd been given the interview, I don't know. Marion was the music expert on our team, but that day she'd been given a fashion interview. I know quite a bit about fashion and had been given the music piece. It was perverse and we were both struggling. I'm always happy to admit my ignorance of a subject and did so with Andrew and Julian, asking for their guidance so that the interview would be favourable to them. Julian was charming, kind and helpful. Andrew, less so. It pains me to have to pay a lot of money to see his shows, but then he is highly creative, even if he isn't, in my opinion, an agreeable person. Sometimes problems arose because of the entourage surrounding the major stars. Once you got through the minders, 
many of the stars themselves were normal, approachable and very nice. Sometimes the researchers would brief us as to how awkward, difficult or unpleasant they'd found our potential guests. You'd be prepared for the worst and then find an absolute pussycat. Perhaps it's because people get wound up before an appearance on television and it brings out their prickly side. I know I'm at my most aggressive when I'm wrong-footed or out of my depth. One of the most embarrassing interviews I ever had to do was with the singer Andy Williams. He was in England for a concert tour to promote his latest recording. But the main reason everyone wanted to interview him was because his ex-wife had been accused of shooting her lover. And as Terry Dobson dispatched me to London, I was left in no doubt as to the line of questioning required. I was distinctly uncomfortable. I presented myself at the reception desk at the Dorchester Hotel in Park Lane and asked to be put through to one of Mr Williams' aides. All knowledge of a pre-arranged interview was denied. We didn't have mobile phones in those days, so I had to queue and wait for one of the public ones in the hotel lobby. Obviously, phone calls flew back and forth and finally I was told that Mr Williams would do the interview and I was to wait for him in reception. About half an hour later, he arrived with a young woman draped over his arm. In the taxi going to the sound studio at Broadcasting House, I simply couldn't find a way around asking him the personal questions I'd been ordered to put to him. It was doubly difficult because of the young lady accompanying him. When we got to the studio, in desperation, I owned up to the fact that my editor had given me instructions and I stood to lose my job if I didn't carry them through. Mr Williams acted like a true gentleman and did answer the awkward questions, although, understandably, he was very guarded. It wasn't the best interview I've ever done, but I kept my job. It was a joy to be able to interview so many people I admired and whose work I respected. But the highlight of my time at Pebble Mill was when I was alone in the office waiting for my guest of the day, the actor and film star Jim Dale. Donnie McLeod, who usually did the major personality interviews, was fogbound in Aberdeen and couldn't get down for the programme. One of the researchers came to the office and, as I was the only interviewer around, said, Jan, would you mind doing an extra interview today? The guest is Omar Sharif. Mind? You must be joking. You couldn't see me for dust as I belted down the corridor for the pre-recorded interview. I had no research notes, but read his autobiography, The Eternal Mail, a few weeks earlier. Omar is a self-confessed gambling addict and needed to raise finance, so he did a promotional work for board game manufacturers. Obviously, the games had to be mentioned, but I was let loose to interview my all-time heartthrob. I'd sat through Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago so many times and leaned heavily on questions about the two films. Omar was everything I'd ever imagined and more. A total gentleman with the most mesmeric eyes and the sexiest voice imaginable. He also came out with some rather surprising statements. He said, I don't want to be a film star anymore. It gets in the way of a private life. I have no girlfriend, family or wife. Mind you, he did appear to go on enjoying a bachelor existence and dated some beautiful women, although I don't think he ever married again after the divorce from his first wife. 
He also gave his explanation of why men prefer the company of men. They, men, remain children and don't mature and become adults, so they like to sit and talk to other men. He's got something there. I also feel that in some ways men never grow up. Women are a much more mature breed. Omar also asked if I was married. I was divorced. Because the interview was pre-recorded for transmission the following day, I was given that day off. When I got back to the studio, one of the researchers casually announced, Oh, by the way, Jan, Omar Sharif phoned up to talk to you after the interview went out yesterday, but we told him you'd got a day off. Curses. It would have been lovely to have had a lunch date with him, but by now he was far away on his promotional tour and I would imagine never gave the interviewer at Pebble Mill another thought. Still, meeting him was a magic moment and I've got his book autographed to Jan with my love, Omar Sharif. He could simply have put best wishes. He didn't have to put love, did he? As well as coping with our workload, we also had to deal with the requests, which came in thick and fast, for one or other of the team to attend a fete, a gala dinner, a charity event. Often, the invitation would contain the line, we'd only need Donnie, Bob, David, Mary and Jan for half an hour. What so many forgot was the travel time. We tended to keep our acceptances to within a reasonable radius of the Pebble Mill Studios or to the area of our main domicile. One of the requests came from Leicester and it was to be judge on a coal board competition for their annual coal flame queen. The venue was a holiday inn and on arrival I noted how refreshingly different and pleasing was the decor in reception. On being greeted by the PR woman for the hotel, I made a complimentary comment and was told the designer was at the hotel that day and asked if I would like to meet him. I really didn't want to, but having made the comment, it would have seemed churlish to refuse. And so Ezra Atiyah entered my life. Sliding doors? If I hadn't made a polite comment? Ah well, all part of life's rich pattern.